This episode is brought to you by Perforce. Either you're in a big or small team, you are going to need some sort of version control. Version control allows you to kind of backtrack your saved project files, not just with yourself, but with your team, so that anybody can access any backlog of any of your files. So you can see, to build any successful project, you are going to need Perforce. So go to Perforce.com. Up to five independent developers on a team is completely free. So there's really no reason for you not to try it. And I'm telling you, I've used this in my professional and personal career. And it's the gold standard for making game development happen. So again, go to Perforce.com. Give it a try and download the free version that allows up to five team members to use the software right now. Also, this episode is sponsored by Unity. Unity is the number one game engine out there for you to use to realize the game project that you have. And that idea that you've been cooking for a long time, isn't it nice to be able to do it without any cost. So you can download Unity for free, start cranking out at that idea. And when you are ready to make it serious and put it out there for the world to see Unity, makes it super easy, super affordable for you to be successful. So go to unity.com, give it a download, try it out, and don't miss out. All right, uh, before we start this week's episode, just want to kind of catch up with you guys. Thank you for all your support. Been having a lot of positive response from the exclusive Life Unchained episodes. Again, this is for Patreon supporters only. So for all those Patreon supporters, I thank you very much. I am also loving all the lovely messages in uh, extending any advice uh, that I can give you, uh, like you can send it to info at gamedevunchained.com. The next Patreon goal that I'm trying to achieve with the podcast is opening up a voicemail for listeners to call in and leave a message. And at the end of each podcast, play it for myself and the guest to attempt to kind of help you on your own journey. So that's the next goal that I'm trying to unlock for the podcast. I think it'll be a integral part uh, to standardize these episodes and make it a little fun, have a little bit fam involvement. So it's not just me and the guests chattering about. So if you want to help achieve that, go to, to uh, patreon.com forward slash blue champs and any contributions will be helpful. Uh, future announcements as well. As you guys may know, I run a uh, crowdfunded game school online. So go to gameschoolonline.com, check it out. Uh, but we're adding two new scholars. We call these scholars scholars, but you may know them as mentors. So if you want that extra one-on-one help, we have a prestigious faculty that is ready to help you. On that list of new scholars we're adding this month is Beruz Ruzbe. He has been in the industry for decades now, spending uh, 
10 of those years at Naughty Dog as a texture artist. So if you need to up your texturing skill, get some uh, leveling up in your substance designer, uh, you definitely want to book a session with Beruz. So you can find and support that through GameSchoolOnline.com and check it out. Oh, man. It's been a fun year, hasn't it? I hope you guys are enjoying yours as much as I am. Uh, starting to get in the groove of things, you know, being a uh, a full-time businessman now. Getting out of the rat race a bit. A lot of the details is for the Patreon supporters out there. I want to thank you as I share my thoughts, but this marks my nine months. Uh, every month that flies by, every day that flies by, I'm just so... I'm just feeling so blessed. So a lot of this is because of the support out there from you guys and uh, all these special guests that we've had on the show have really helped me kind of sculpt my journey here, uh, make it less scary. So uh, I'm definitely getting more comfortable with this new lifestyle. The the ability to kind of see my kids, my wife every day, every minute of the day uh, has not been boring. Uh, it isn't uh, hurting me <laughs> as much as you think. Uh, there's definitely a component of overexposure to family that is legitimately part of the fear, right? Is being around people too much, right? You kind of want that variety. Uh, but uh, surprisingly, that's not the case. I'm just loving every minute of it. I'm finding more time to myself, um, more ways to chart my path. And I see every week, the more effort I'm putting into things, uh, the bigger the results. So there's no salary cap or any of that sort, at least financially speaking. But in terms of energy, uh, uh, you can just directly see the effort putting being put in. Um, so that's pretty satisfying. Well, I mean... I just want to introduce this uh, episode. Uh, this is with uh, a good friend who's been on and off, well, who's been on the podcast a few times, Jay Powell. And his topic is a very interesting one. I think anybody out there, if you have a game idea in hand or you're working on something, you know, the biggest part of it is just uh, protecting it. So this talk as you can see in the title, is about IP licensing for games. And man, he has a way of uh, speaking to everybody. He was he has that nice Southern-ish accent that draws at least me in and uh, has melodic messages to kind of help you succeed in your own way. So thank you all for uh, ch chiming in. Without further ado... This is from gdex.me, November 2019, part de, so please enjoy. Alright, so yeah, we're going to talk about IP licensing, and I'm like fast-forwarding through slides already trying to get to full screen. The... Um, the reality of the industry now is that you just absolutely need to have whatever step up on the other company that you can get to get your game noticed. We've got like thousands of games getting launched every single year. 
you know, even more so on mobile, but even just PC and console stuff, your ability to stand out and draw users is just, it's harder and harder every single year. And so we talk to a lot of developers, you know, and I've been doing this for 20 years. And what we always hear is discoverability. You know, what, what's the biggest issue you have aside from funding? Once everybody gets funding, the next step is discoverability. How do we, you know, get noticed? So just real quick about me. I came into the industry in the late nineties. I have, you know, for better or worse, been doing this for 20 years now. Um, I spent the first part of that as an agent. You know, I worked as a publisher. I've worked as a development and for the developer. And for the last 10 years, run my own consulting firm. And so we do everything from biz dev to high-level marketing to licensing for a very wide variety of studios, you know, not in studios, but companies around the world, developers, publishers, uh, conferences, service providers, a lot of different companies. Over the years, I've worked with Star Trek, Garfield, Disney. I mean, you can you can read this stuff. I, I've done a lot of licensing deals. So we'll, we'll, we'll suffice it at that. So there is a lot we want to go through. And I'm on the East Coast, and it's like near dinner time here. So I'm going to make sure we do this this promptly. We're going to go through preparation and positioning, identifying, qualifying these partners, you know, preparing your materials. You know, what do you need to have ready when you start going out? Um, the deal structure and terms, which is the you know the meat and the potatoes of all of this, where everybody needs to know exactly what you know needs to put in these contracts and what they don't. And then how you maintain that relationship, because that's where we see more licensing deals go sideways between developers and IPs or publishers and IPs or, you know, all three together, however it's in there, is you have to realize a lot of times we as a game industry don't speak the same language as the licensing industry. And so being able to maintain that relationship is super, super important. So when you're getting the preparation side, the first thing that you're always going to need is a CRM. And the CRM stands for, what is it, customer resource management. Basically, it's a gigantic database. The one you've always heard of is Salesforce. But there are dozens of these things that are far more applicable to small studios. So there's Sugar CRM, there is uh, Nutshell, that's what we use. HubSpot has their own CRM now. Just go online and Google CRM for small business, and you'll have a list of them. I mean, there'll be plenty of them that pop up. Just find the one that is is most applicable to you. You want to have a minimum space for 1,000 contacts, and that sounds really, really big, but you'll quickly fill it up. Our database has got 30,000 contacts in it, I believe now. Um, You want to have a minimum of five users. You want the ability to schedule tasks and events. And that's mainly to help remind all of us to follow up with people. The ability to enter notes on accounts and contacts. That's your basic requirements that you want, you know, before anything and, and, and everything else. So. When you're going and picking that CRM, one, keep in mind, everyone in your company doesn't need to use it. You know, as long as the people who are out there talking to the licensing companies and doing the biz dev side of everything, as long as they have access to it, you're good. 
you know, it, it's not something that your lead artist and your lead programmer, I'm not saying you don't give them access to it, but I wouldn't pay for them to have access to it. Um, you're, you've got to figure out once you've got that, you're going to start dumping contacts in it basically. But before you do that, as part of that preparation, you need to understand what your goals are. Are you looking to create an, a game based around an IP from the start? You just absolutely have to have it or have to have something like it and you want to go from there? Or is it something that you've got a game to alpha or beta stage and you realize it's missing a little something? And so you want to add an IP to it you know, to try to boost that visibility? Or the third scenario, which we see a lot of, is you've actually had a successful game on the market, but now you want to go and create a new version. We used to call them reskins, and I hate that phrase because a true reskin is just going in there and basically reskinning the characters in the background of the story and all that stuff. Those games don't work. Don't try to do that. You know, you have to understand that even if you are adapting an existing game to a, a new IP to release a new version, you have to go back in and do work on the design and level, you know, level selection or wherever. You have got to get back into the, the bulk of that game to make it authentic to that license. Otherwise, everyone is just going to see what it, see it for what it is, and you're just slapping an IP on it. And you're not really doing anything new. So understand what your goals are. When you're going out and talking to the licenses and the IP folks, you want to understand what their goals are as well. You know, are they looking for something to be involved with from the early stages and really, you know, boost the engagement level of their users and their fans? Or are they looking for something that they can just slap, you know, their name on and make a bunch of money? Or are they looking at it as a, a marketing drive? You know, something to raise not only engagement from their fans, but awareness of the brand in general. Because there's different variations of all of that. They each have their pros and their cons, but you need to be aware of what their goals are as well. So, you know, then you want to go and start, you know, assessing value here. And that's where, you know, it, it pays to be very critical of yourself to understand, you know, what your strengths are. You know, if you're coming in with no track record as a team and you maybe you've got some leads that done, you know, new pro, done projects in the past that shipped, but this is something completely new, you need to understand that there's not a lot of value that you're intrinsically offering that IP. The value that you're going to offer that licensor is money. That's just the reality of it. If you're in a situation, and I'll use, you know, Rocket League, for example, you know, they had a very successful game, completely unbranded, you know, their own original IP. And then when it got successful, they started bringing things in like Batman and Back to the Future and a lot of these other licensing plays that you see in there. Their value to a licensor was completely different. You know, they had a lot of market share and eyeballs that they could bring to something. And, you know, that's what they were, that's what they were focused on. And so you need to understand and be on, again, you've got to be honest with yourself where you fall into that category and then, you know, factor that into everything. So 
the next stage is determining risk. And there's not ever going to be that perfect title, that perfect deal. You're always going to have red flags. But what I tell folks is when those red flags start to look like a golf course and they're everywhere, that's when you need to start being very, very careful. You know, you have to understand the risk, not only from the IP side, but also from your side. You know, Weedcraft from Devolver earlier this year is a good example. Great game, but simply because it dealt with marijuana, you know, the, the growing and the selling, they lost out on a lot of, <laughs> not to say they lost out, they missed some traditional media, but actually the stink that it raised Help them in the end. But, you know, if you're making a gory fighting game, for example, there's a lot of kid-friendly brands that aren't going to be interested in working with you. There is a very good reason all the Avenger, all the Avenger movies and the Marvel movies, except for Deadpool, are rated PG-13. You know, they want these exciting action pieces, but they have to keep it okay for, for kids to come see as well. And so understanding where your game falls in potential risk for an IP holder is very important. On the flip side, understanding the risks that come with that IP holder, you need to be very well aware of. So for example, right now, Kickstarter. Kickstarter's having all this, you know, negative press around their anti-union stance and did they or did they not fire people who were trying to build a union? Whether you care about that at all or you're on one side of that argument or the other makes no difference. What you need to realize as a developer is Kickstarter is going to lose some of its install base and some of the people that are going to be contributing to it simply because of this situation not necessarily because they're in favor or against, but just because of, and it's not going to have anything to do with you, but you're going to lose opportunities in there. The same goes true for any IP out there. SeaWorld is a big example. You know, I'm old. I'm in my forties. When I was growing up, everybody wanted to go to SeaWorld. You went to Disney World, you went to SeaWorld while you were down there. It was the greatest thing ever. Now, after the whole blackfish thing and a lot of, you know, consumer awareness and, you know, stance on how they treated the animals or, you know, what have you in there, not exactly a good brand to be associated with. They're slowly closing down. They're slowly going out of business. And so back in the late 90s, I suppose, THQ had a big old, you know, tycoon game, SeaWorld tycoon. You couldn't do that now. You could do it, but you're not going to get nearly the exposure and the benefit that you would get out of doing something more traditional or a completely different kind of, of uh, theme park attraction. You have to understand and be ready for, because sometimes this stuff is going to come out of the blue, but you need to be ready for and be aware of any problems that that IP may reflect back on your game. So beyond that, We've got marketing versus licensing. And that is key because that's two separate ways that you can come into the company. You can either start by calling their marketing team or you can start by calling their licensing team. Licensing is going to want you to give them money in some way, shape, or form. It may not be money up front, but it may be money on the back end. They're not interested in paying you to do anything. 
they want you to pay them to use that IP. Marketing is the other side of that coin. Though. You can go to the marketing side, and if they have a marketing budget that includes interactive you know, content or partnerships, um, we just had Halloween, and there's a bag of Sour Patch Kids upstairs that has Crash Bandicoot racing on it. Food is a great new, and I won't say new, but relatively new market for games because it's so easy to do things like QR codes or, you know, cards that you can drop in the side of a cereal box that have an access code that you can go download something. The marketing team at a company is going to be interested in paying you to do something. The licensing team is going to be interested in you paying them to do something. Nine times out of 10, if you're building a long-term relationship with one of these companies, you're going to start out on the licensing side and then slowly move over to the marketing side. There are going to be occasions when that gets completely flipped on its head, but generally that's going to start out. The more value that you show as a studio with your game and your track record and the people involved, the more you're going to be able to target the marketing side. Otherwise, it's the licensing side. And it, you know, it depends if you want to have your own IP or there's a lot of different factors involved. It's like everything else in this industry. When people ask me a question, it's like, well, it depends. That should be like the tagline of, of our company. It depends. So you've got an idea of what you need. You know, you've got your CRM set up. You've got, you know, you understand the risks involved. You've, you're ready to start looking and, and identifying who to work with and which IPs are going to be good for you. And you need to do this. Don't ever, ever get like laser focused on something. And I've had clients do this. They have a certain celebrity or brand in mind and they just absolutely get tunnel vision on it. They don't look at anything else. It's just like, I have to have that particular IP. And that's dangerous simply because there's a lot of options out there. Some of them are going to be better for you than even the one that you're thinking. Some are going to be worse, but you have to go out and do your research to find out. You can't just say, I'm making a basketball game. I have to have Stephon Curry. You know, it's, it's one of the, you, you've got to be able to look at the bigger picture. So the first thing I always recommend is join Lima. Lima is the uh, Licensing International Marketing Association. I may have just absolutely made that up, but it is the licensing group that oversees and it is the big network of licensing agents and IPs and all stuff globally. The beauty about joining Lima and there's a cost to it, but I don't know the number. They don't have it on the website anymore. You have to like send them an email to figure it out. If you're going into doing licensing, it's absolutely worth it because the minute you join, you get access to their database and it's a digital database of everybody who is in the organization. So, you know, y'all were talking about Garfield before. If you want to go in and you're like, I've got this game, it'll be great for Garfield. You can just type Garfield in their website and it'll pop you up. The company's actually called Paul's, P-A-W-S. But Paul's will pop up with their contact information. Who's their licensing agent? Here's their email address. Sometimes it's even got their cell phone numbers in it. You know, it's absolutely key to being able to keep your options open when you're, you know, looking for an IP. So 
once you've joined Lima and you have this big access, you need to start doing, you know, your research into which one is going to be the best. So we use something as a baseline called, you know, the social footprint. And it's literally, you, you add up their Twitter followers, their Facebook followers, Instagram, if applicable. If they can tell you how many people they have on an email newsletter, that helps too. It's basically how many people they have access to. If, if we said, we're going to release this news on social media, how many people is it going to hit? So that social footprint is key. You need to make sure that the IP is appropriate for your audience. And this is stuff we got back to on the preparation side. Make sure it's appropriate for what you want to do. Once you start having conversations with them, you know, and it starts out, you know, a simple email introduction or, I mean, you can cold call someone now. I'll give you about a 50-50 chance of, of starting a good relationship like that because some people don't like it anymore. I'm old school. And it's still weird for me not to like just cold call somebody, but I do it very rarely myself. Um, understand what their goals are. Have that conversation with them. You know, are there new things that they're going to release that they want to promote? You know, you know, the main thing you want to figure out is do they really want to be a partner with you in this game or do they just want your money? And both of those types of companies exist. We got a phone call last year from a company and they represented several um, 80s and 90s action movie IPs, big IPs. I mean, it's one of those that you instantly know the movies and you know, you know who's involved with them. But, you know, we said, what are you looking for? And they said, you know, quarter million dollars. And I'm like, okay. So are you going to be doing anything to help promote the game, social media, you know, outreach to your fans? And they're like, no, 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 we're not going to do anything. The IP speaks for itself and this is what it's worth. And it was a very short conversation because I was done talking at that point in time. You, that's not the type of partner you want to get involved with because they literally don't care about your game. And all they want is that payment up front and then they're happy. Now, I guarantee you, if you do that deal and you make a crappy game, they're going to be all over you and, you know, absolutely can't believe you did this to their IP, but they're not interested in helping you promote it. And that's what you need as an indie dev nine times out of 10. It's almost less about the IP, the more about how you can, you know, use that fan network and the engagement they have you know, with the people passionate about that IP to help the discoverability of your game. And if they're not going to do anything, they're not going to be a, a good partner for you. And, you know, like Brandon said, if you have questions at any point, just toss them into Twitch. I'm just going to tear through this thing. Sorry. All right. So, when it comes to preparing your materials for outreach, you know, and this may happen before you start doing a lot of that research, it may start, you know, afterwards. It just depends in, you know, how you go about doing the research. If you just looked up everything online, then obviously it's going to be after it. If you were calling them, I would be before it. But anyway, so we're going to go through, and these are all separate slides. So what they, as licensors, are looking for, you know, what to put in your deck. Uh, don't call, never mind, call them. 
and then you know create your system. So what do they want? You know, and, and we sat down and, and before we did this lecture, I went and called several friends of mine in the industry, and I'm not gonna be naming them outright because I can't do that, but I can tell you that all the stats you're gonna see in this next few slides are very recent and very real. So licensors are going to want to see a quality studio or a team. And you know, if you're insomniac and you know you're not owned by Sony, we'll pretend that they're not. It's it's a no-brainer. They can immediately see the work that you did. Oh, you did the new Spider-Man game. You know, they can go back and say, yes, you're a team we want to work with based on your track record. But a lot of times we don't have that ability. So what you want to to show, even if it's a brand new team, is that you've got the leads in place. Your lead producer, your lead engineer, your lead artist, your lead designer, you know, the folks that are, you know, overseeing everything in the game, they are a you know good fit. They have a good track record in the industry. They are somebody that this IP holder will trust, you know, with their license. Then they're going to look for a past track record of you know, the games that are done either by your team or, you know, by the company in general. If you've done a lot of strategy simulation games, you're not going to get as warm of a response from somebody who's basically looking to do a mobile endless runner. Make sure that the work that you can show as your past efforts is something that is applicable to that IP. And so and you want to make that very clear in your documentation, you know, it's like, look, we can make an excellent racing game because here are the other racing games that we've done. So, you know, that needs to be in there. You want to show that you have the ability to take that game to market. And what we mean is, you know, basically don't go in there and pitch them that you're going to do a free to play endless runner. If you don't have, you know, the money set aside to do user acquisitions or you haven't done user acquisitions before, you know, when you can go in and say, you know, we're going to bring this game to PC and console and here are the other PC and console games that we've done in the past. Or, you know, if you are pitching for a free-to-play game and you can say, here are the other free-to-play games that we've actually completed in the past and we brought these to market and, you know, here are the KPIs that go around with them, then, you know, that's your better case scenario. So, you know, one of the things one of my friends pointed out, you don't have to show that vertical slice if you have a track record. Ten years ago, that wasn't the case. You know, they wanted to see, you know, what the game looked like before they did anything. Now, because games have become so you know, embedded in society, basically, and virtually everyone is a gamer, even though they don't want to admit it, you have executives of these companies that have a little more experience in the industry, and they can say, oh, okay, you know, I understand what you're saying, you're going to take a Mario Kart game, and you're going to put RIP and characters in it, and, and they get it. This will still always depend on how forward thinking that IP holder is, as a general rule, the older the industry, and I'm thinking books and movies in particular, the harder time you'll have with this. There are, you know, folks in those industries who are forward thinking. I've worked with them. I have good friends in both of them. 
But at the same time, you will still run into those executives that have been, you know, doing movies at this movie studio for 50 years and they didn't need, need games 30 years ago. They don't need them now. That mentality still very much exists. Uh, if you go to the licensing show in Vegas or they do one in London, you will, and not everyone, but you will go to meetings and, and walk up to stands and introduce what you do and get this like glazed look in their face because they're not exactly sure how that fits into what they're doing. That's changed a lot in the last five or 10 years, but it's still not completely pervasive. And I mean, we don't even see this at all publishers sometimes. I mean, you get publisher executives, you get licensing executives who aren't gamers. And so you have to absolutely boil it down to the lowest common denominator. But your opportunity is much better, you know, nowadays that you can show something to someone and it doesn't necessarily have to be already reskinned to what their IP is. They're going to get it. You can explain it without having to show them a whole bunch of, of, uh, of gameplay. So when you're building that deck, what do you put in it? You need to have, you know, typically I don't like to send out decks that are more than 10 to 15 pages, 10 to 15 slides. When you get past that, you start getting a whole lot of, you know, glazed over effect from executives. They're like, oh God, there's like 15 more slides in this thing. I don't want to keep clicking. But, you know, you want to keep everything as short as possible. So, you know, a game description, you know, outline, genre, this like this game, but this difference, you know, the backstory, how it's going to apply to, you know, what their IP is, but keep it brief. Um, a short game description is where you break it down into one sentence. Um, my, my example was always, you know, Rainbow Six for so many years because that was like the first one that I saw that really got it. But now that IP is like so evolved, I'm not real sure how that's new anymore. But back in the day, you know, when we first sat down and saw Rainbow Six coming out of Red Storm, we're like, okay, it's a shooter. So what? And they're like, it's a shooter, but, and then they tab over and they show you the, you know, strategy side of it where you figure out where you're going to break into windows and doors and everything. And it's like, oh my God, there's a whole tactical element to it. It's that, you know, you want to be able to say, my game is doom, but with tactics, or my game is Mario Kart, but with ships instead of, you know, cars. Take Whatever is known, put a twist on it, and that's where you end up. Outline your key game features, and I'm going to say the unique selling points as well, even though you want that are two different slides, because it's it's absolutely essential to know what's a key game feature and what's a unique selling point. So look at Fortnite. Game feature, it's a battle royale. You know, you can pick your skins, you can pick your weapons, you dropped on an island, you fight to the center, last person alive wins. Those are the features. The unique selling point is, oh yeah, and you can build your own structures. Know and understand the difference between a feature and a unique selling point. Having multiplayer is not a unique selling point. Being able to change and customize your character is not a unique selling point. Now, if you have complete 3D morphing technology and can, you know, grow horns out of somebody's head that are completely different than the, you know, more than just like clicking the next tab and saying, oh, I like horns too on this character. 
that could be a unique selling point. But unique selling points are just that. They're unique. And I know in this industry, it's extremely hard to say we have something that's completely unique. But if you think about it, and if your game is set up well, and it's been thought out from the get-go, you're going to have one. Or you're going to have one that this is a feature that very few games bring in. Your best case scenario is this is a feature that you're familiar with from another genre, but we've applied it to this genre. So, you know, think about that. You want your features in there. You want your unique selling points. Break down the platforms. You want PC, console, mobile. Uh, this is where you put in your, your pricing model as well, because, you know, free-to-play versus premium is a big deal for licenses because a free-to-play game is going to get their IP in front of more people. A premium game is going to get it engaged with more, you know, so you want to make sure that you've got not only the platforms that you're targeting, but your financial model on that slide as well. Um, when's your release date? Doesn't have to be specific. You know, you can even say like later half of 2020. Nobody at this level is looking for, you know, the fact that you're going to release it on September 12th. The overview of the studio, you know, and if the studio is new, say you're new. We are a brand new studio comprised of veterans from, boom, the next slide, Team Bios. But, you know, outline on the studio slide how big your team is, how many projects have been produced if the studio has a track record, and the location of the company. And location, location can still be big. You do have companies, especially out in L.A. or up in New York, that want to work you know, very closely with somebody, but it's not nearly as important as it used to be. Uh, and at the same time, not having a set office, not having everybody in one general location used to be like the death stroke for, you know, licensing deals and a lot of publishing deals too, honestly. But these days, everyone is very accustomed to, okay, look, we have a dispersed team, you know, not everybody's in the same place. And they're fine with that but just outline the general location or at least the location of their primary point of contact. So then your team bios. And again, you don't necessarily have to have everybody in there. I would recommend not having everybody in there, to be honest, because then it's just going to add slides on slides on slides that people know what else to click through. What people care about are the executive team and your team leads. That's all you got to worry about. Everybody else is wonderful. We want you to be part of the team, but in the initial deck, don't put them in there because it's just more stuff for that person to click through. Um, a list of past titles from the studio, obviously focus on the ones that were uh, very successful, but also focus on the ones, even if they weren't as successful, but were more applicable to what you're doing for this particular project. So if your studio has been around for five or 10 years and lately you've been doing a lot of, you know, first person shooters, hardcore titles, but you have a track record two or three years ago of doing kids platformer games, put that in there, mention it, even though you haven't been doing it recently, it at least shows you still understand how and what's important. Screenshots, concept, render sketches, you know, it depends on what stage everything's at, but you want to have some of them in there, you know, showing different settings. Don't put, you know, five different 
slides that all show different concept art for different characters. You want a variety of things in there. Backgrounds, characters, different colors. You know, what's the user interface look like? The more variety you can put in there is possible, but don't, again, don't stack 20 of these things in there. Uh, finally, your company logo and list of awards or other industry recognition. And if you don't have it, that's fine. It's like end of the day, like I said, the whole point of this is licensing has changed a lot. You don't have to be 10 years, 15 years into a studio to be able to go out and get these things. So, all right, now we're going to get into the fun stuff. You know, here's what deal structures look like, terms, that sort of stuff. Um, these are the major terms that you're going to see, you know, in an agreement. What's the minimum guarantee? Advance versus flat fee. So a couple of things to keep in mind. A minimum guarantee doesn't necessarily mean it's all due before the game ships. It means you're guaranteeing them over the course of one year or two years that this is how much money they're going to see, but you don't necessarily have to give that up day one. Uh, an advance is going to be just that. We're going to give you an advance on the royalties that we intend to generate for you through our games, and that an advance is generally due, obviously, before the game starts. Um, MGs and advances are usually associated with some sort of back-end royalty. A flat fee deal isn't. And a flat fee deal can be very good for you or it can, <laughs> it can be bad. Um, and I'm not like in a lecture hall, so I can't ask you to raise your hands. But the issue with The Witcher, if you followed that earlier, when CD Projekt first licensed those books from the author, he didn't think anything of it. Games weren't that big a deal. And they worked out a flat fee deal. And of course, CD Projekt wasn't nearly as big as they are now. And they didn't have that success yet that they were about to show. But then, you know, eight years later, the dude tries to turn around and sue them because they've made millions off of those books. And he's not seeing any of it. Well, he's not seeing any of it because he agreed to a flat fee deal. I mean, that's just, that's the reality. Sometimes, you know, it's going to work out for you. Sometimes it won't. If you're going and you're doing something and a social casino game is, is the primary example here, you know, one game where you've got a whole lot of IPs in it, you're best to start doing flat fee deals because it makes royalty reporting a nightmare. And, and if you've got something that's going to be, you truly anticipate is going to be a long-term, you know, revenue provider for you, a flat fee deal is better because it's going to save you money. The downside of it is you absolutely have to know what your revenue projections are before you can do that, or you may grossly overpay for something and never see that money back again. So anyway, these are going to range from, you know, literally nothing up to maybe a quarter million a year. You know, anything beyond a quarter million of a year, you best be doing Star Wars or, or, or something along those lines, because that's a lot of money that gets, you know, tapped in there um royalties so royalties can vary dramatically for an ip though you shouldn't be paying more than 20 percent. it's going to go up or down depending on the ip itself how savvy the agent is with the industry 
you know, the particular situation that you're in, you know, minimum guarantees and advances always affect royalties because the reality is the more money you give them up front, the less they'll want on the back end. But you can get very, you know, good IPs for as low as 7%, but go ahead and factor in your head. It could go up 20% just, you know, to be safe. If it goes beyond 20%, you either have an extenuating circumstance where you have absolutely no leverage at all on, you know, the negotiation, or it's not a good deal, bottom line. Uh, Your term, two years plus or minus. Going beyond two years, you need to make sure that it's something that you want to be involved with for that long, because especially you look at something like TV, or, you know, nowadays with all the streaming networks, you don't know how long that show is going to be around. I mean, we see shows canceled mid-season. So, and we'll talk more about TV shows in a little bit, but most of these IP deals are going to be for one year, and then they'll have continuation clauses in the contract. Two years is about as far as I would push it, unless you've worked with the studio or this IP a lot in the past, and you're super comfortable with them. So. There's a section of the contract, it's called grant of licensing, well, grant of license. And it basically boils down to don't pay what you don't need. All of these numbers that we're talking about with the royalties and the minimum guarantees get drastically affected by this clause. Likeness rights are anything that includes a celebrity's face or their voice. Music rights are obviously, you know, the music. So you can literally go out and do a a kiss game and never use the music from you know the band and you'll actually save a little bit of money in there because you don't have to go and you know get those rights separately again with a lot of these social casino games you see a lot of the licensing is done without the license rights because let's say if you're doing a top gun you know any kind of game you can show what Top Gun is with just their logo, a a picture of an F-14, you know, a lot of these things in there, the iconography basically that lets you know it's a Top Gun game or if it's a simulator, you can still get away with doing it without having Tom Cruise and Anthony Edwards and Val Kilmer's faces all over it. Because the minute you do that, your Rates go up, your, your advance goes up, your royalties go up. The amount of time it's going to take to get things approved goes up. If you don't need that celebrity's face or voice, don't pay for it. Bottom line. Territory. Again, only what you need. If you, if there's no difference in getting, you know, no cost difference in getting the whole world versus, you know, North America and Europe, for example, then yeah, go ahead and get the whole world. But you will have cases where, you know, celebrities are extremely popular in other countries. So the classic example for all of us old people is David Hasselhoff. Here in the U.S., David Hasselhoff is known as the guy behind Knight Rider and the guy on Baywatch. I'm really showing my age when I say he was the guy on Knight Rider. But the that same David Hasselhoff is a completely different thing in Germany. He's a huge music star. And so if you're doing a game on Baywatch, 
you need to be careful unless you pay for the German rights because the German grant of licenses on David Hasselhoff's likeness is going to go through the roof in Germany versus what it is over here. So, you know, be wary of that. You know, don't go and pay extra for territories that you may not need. I mean, your game may not even be a fit for some territories. So don't go, you know, spending money and paying for for what you don't need at the end of the day. Approvals. And this is just beyond important because this can absolutely destroy your game, truthfully. As a developer, you should always have a clause in the contract that sets strict timelines for approvals with the publisher. You know, we're going to send you this build. You're going to have a week to review it. And then you need to send us detailed feedback and we're going to have a week to fix it. All right. Even in that case scenario, you're talking a minimum of two, possibly three weeks before your milestone is submitted and when it's approved. And then if you have another 30-day approval payment from the publisher, you basically submit a milestone day one, you don't get paid till day 60. The same is true for IP approvals. I mean, they're not paying you like the publisher's paying you a milestone, but you need to have very, very strict timelines in there for their approvals because you're going to have to go through far more hoops and, and you know get green lighted from more people with an IP than you necessarily are with a publisher. You know, if the studio, if you're doing a movie game, and the studio has to like go through and look at it on their side, and then they have to send it to Tom Cruise's agent for him to sub- to look at. You're talking about fluctuating your production schedule by months, not weeks. So you need to be very, very clear on how long it's going to take to get an approval, what their response is going to be, how resubmissions go all of that sort of stuff. And your producer needs to be keenly aware of that as well. So they can, you know, focus that in, figure that into their, you know, production schedule. Um, Payments and reporting quarterly, if possible. It just makes life easier. You know, if, if, if you only have to send four royalty reports a year, not 12. More and more because of digital distribution, we're seeing monthly you know, payment reporting, royalty reporting, that's just the reality of it. If you can get it done quarterly, do it, but just be aware you may need to do it monthly. Um, Trademarks and branding. Yeah, make sure you know what you can and can't use. Um, We've done a lot of work with National Geographic. I know the folks over at the Smithsonian. Um, We'll talk about them and how I managed to piss off the the Smithsonian one day. I mean, in a lot of these brands, you know, that logo is extremely important. You know, that yellow border for National Geographic is sacred. The sunburst from the Smithsonian is sacred. You need to understand exactly what you can use and what you can't use and understand the terminology under which you can use them. But also you need to make sure that they're using your logo as well. So if they're promoting this game somewhere, they need to say, you know, this is a game based on National Geographic's whatever it may be, and it was developed by your company. Um, yeah, here we're, here we're talking about what I did with the Smithsonian. So you have to be very careful about announcements, even in the day of social, especially in the world of social media now, 
make sure that whatever you say has approval. Use their PR team strategically as well in that you want to make sure, and this is like one of the very easy gives from a lot of these, you know, IP, they're going to be more than happy to mention the game on social media because that's a very low impact, you know, job for them. Where it gets expensive is if you want them to start doing commercials and, you know, where they have to get a whole lot of people involved. You know, the reality is a lot of our discoverability in games comes from social media. So it's a huge bonus to go in and get their social media team engaged and you want to make sure you do it. On your side, be careful. So what I did to piss off the Smithsonian, I sent a newsletter out because the studio that I was working with was going to, sorry about that, was going to be working with them to create a game, potentially. And But I used the word partnered, which was the big mistake. It's one thing to say, hey, look, we're going to you know, start working on finding some teams to do some games with the Smithsonian. It's another thing completely to say we are partnered with the Smithsonian to do new games. And that's what resulted in a very angry phone call to me from the head of licensing at the Smithsonian. And we worked it out and I explained what I did, and why I did it. And, you know, she explained why that was really bad. And then I apologized a lot. But if you aren't very careful with what you say and when you say and how you say it, you can do serious damage to your relationship with that company. So just be on the safe side, get everything approved. Say, hey, look, we're going to do the social media post. Is that cool? And then do it after they say it's cool. Don't do it beforehand. So their commitments, and this needs to be very comprehensive because like I said, there are a lot of times in the industry where we as the game side of the world don't speak the same language as you know, license holders and IP companies. So you want to be absolutely very comprehensive. You don't want a lot of them that says, you know, IP holder promises to do social media. Way too vague. You want IP holder is going to do four Facebook posts a week, two Instagram posts, six tweets. And I just made those numbers up off the top of my head. Don't use them as any kind of factual anything, but that's what you want to say. This is exactly how much you're going to do weekly, monthly, whatever. You want to cover that, you know, through all the stages of cooperation that you're going to be doing it. You know, this is where you say you're going to put our logo in there, wherever your logo is present, all of this stuff. But the key is be very, very, very specific on what you expect, because otherwise you can't go back to them and say, well, you didn't help us promote the game. They're like, well, we tweet about it at four times. So I don't know what you wanted. You just need to be clear from the get-go. Water break, time out. All right, insurance. And this is something that a lot of companies don't realize they don't expect. You'll see it referred to from the license holders as E&O insurance. It stands for arrows and emissions. It basically means if you draw Mickey's ears red and somebody sues you for it, that's the insurance that covers it. Um, <laughs> when I worked with Nickelodeon years ago, we got a big document of all the things that we could not make Dora do, which just wanted us to make Dora do them because it was hilarious. But 
Anyway, you can't do that. If we had done stuff like that, we would have been sued and um, that would have been bad. But it's being sued from the, this doesn't protect you from being sued by the partner. It protects you from them being sued by somebody else. So you're always going to need ENO insurance, errors and emissions for at least a million dollars. There are companies that are starting to look at two, five, ten million dollars. But generally, if you get that contract back and they say, you need ENO insurance, you go, oh, we've already got it for a million dollars. Nine times out of 10, they won't make you go and re-up it, you know, increase it. They'll go, okay, because at least you thought about it. At least you have it. <sighs> oh, and then I changed the font. So termination, make sure your deal can't be canceled for any reason, because that's a very good way to just get left out to dry. You know, there needs to be clauses in here that say it can only be canceled for calls, which means you screwed something up or they screwed something up. And then you get a sell-off period. Sell-off periods were more applicable back in the days of botched product because you would literally have product out there in the market that you couldn't you couldn't edit it, change it. You know, it had to be, you know, sold basically. But now it gives you a chance to, you know, if you have a month or two of sell-off in there, it lets you continue to get revenue from that for a month or two so you can get whatever's next lined up. But the main thing is make sure they can't cancel that deal, you know, quote unquote, for any reason. So tips, roadmap of a deal, and then we're going to get into maintaining the relationship. Uh, and Brandon, if I'm getting long here, tell me, because I don't even know what time we started and I'm just rambling on. So just on the general level, New and unproven movies or IP can be acquired cheaper. This is called gambling. You don't know that that's going to be a huge success. The reality is neither does the movie studio, television studio, toy toy company, whoever. No one knows it's going to be a huge success. So you can generally get it cheaper because everybody's just kind of hoping for the best. Uh, An advance on a movie is going to... Like we said earlier, it, it depends on how forward thinking those you know studios are. Old school companies are going to want more money up front. More forward thinking studios, you know, they're more interested in the back end because they understand more about how games work nowadays. Uh, another thing to keep in mind is you know older titles that still have a lot of popularity, that cult classic type thing, or even games. I mean movies that are just still popular you look at lego dimensions and granted they were targeting a bunch of our parent you know us as parents that were buying stuff for their kids but you know you had licenses from back to the future goonies and the original ghostbusters you know things that kids today may not necessarily recognize but parents as the people who are paying for these things you know do realize so always look at back catalog as well as current stuff the back catalog can be a little cheaper and a little easier to predict but that movie studio is always going to be interested in getting you to you know do stuff for the latest movie if you're approached or you're talking to a studio that 
you know, is two or three months from releasing a movie and they don't have a game set up for it. That's a giant red flag. I mean, these studios know now that they need to get games in one way, shape or another set up for their major launches. If they don't try to find out why, because that's generally not a good idea. Um, You can get lower rates for emerging tech, you know, voice assisted games, you can go out and get absolute triple A top property, I mean, top tier IP now for very little on voice assisted games because no one really knows how it's going to work. No one knows how much money they're going to make on it. And especially the more forward thinking studios are going to be more likely to go, yeah, you know what? You don't need an advance on this. Give us a royalty because they want to see how it works too. You know, it's, it's that simple. Uh, so, uh, if you're looking at TV series, make sure it has at least multiple seasons and you want to make sure that they've got a commitment for another one or two. And, and I've had this happen a lot. You know, IP and licensing companies come to us that like, hey, we really want you to do a game based on this series. And I'm like, didn't they get canceled last year? I'm like, well, yeah, but it still has a lot of fans. Yeah, but there's no new content. You know, and so in today's world of live ops and, and you know ongoing content, post launch, all this stuff, you need to make sure that there's a good you know long tail of content you can pull from. If you're talking about something like Supernatural, that yeah, it's been canceled, but it also had like 15 seasons of content, you got a little more you know leeway there. But you know shows that didn't make it more than two years and got canceled be very 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 careful with them um you know and then finally get creative we're a creative industry there are people that think of way cooler to do with games than than i do i'm not going to say this is what you need to do use your head think outside of the box use qr codes on you know food products and, and toys to unlock things ar is finally actually being recognized by the greater community thanks to pokemon it's been around for 10 years but you know now it's popular but you know use use those creative assets you've got in your studio to really think outside the box the more you can do that and the more you can show that ip holder that you're thinking ahead, that you've got this idea that this is really going to pay off, the better off it's going to be, you know, in terms of you getting a deal and getting a deal that is good, basically. So the research phase, this is the typical roadmap. So this is to give you an idea of how long these things take. And in, I've had this entire roadmap take Two weeks, I've had it take six months. So there's no <laughs> real rhyme or reason to it. Generally, a safe assumption is three months from the point at which you start reaching out to the IP holder in terms of getting everything negotiated, get everything signed, get your research done, get a deal on the table and start moving forward. Figure three months. It can be less, it can be more. Uh, so research phase, this is where you're using that CRM or spreadsheet. If you just do it that way to track and qualify folks, then you've got your outreach phase where you're going and, you know, you're talking to different studios and different IPs and do this, do not get, like I said, don't get tunnel vision. Um, you know, start talking to folks and, and, you know, getting to understand what they want and, what they need and a good feel for the IP, basically. Then you're going to be outlining your deal terms. Then you're going to be creating an LOI. Don't make an LOI. LOI is a letter of intent. 
It's basically the deal you do before you do the contract. It outlines the major points in the agreement. And it's typically going to be the ones we just covered. One page is usually enough, two pages at most. If you have an LOI that is more than two pages, you're basically doing a contract. Um, in the contract stage, you know, that can take two weeks to, to literally six months. Um, you know, it's not necessarily because people are going back and forth on deal terms. The more likely reason is attorneys and, you know, approvals internally. You know, it, it, there's so many, the bigger the IP, the bigger the company, the more people have to sign off on it. And it takes time. And so, you know, like I said, I've got these things done in a matter of weeks before. But yeah, we we had one, that, a deal that took six months. And it wasn't somebody like Marvel that we were trying to do it with. You know, it was a mid-tier entertainment company and it took six months. So, um, you know, then you got your live phase you know, when it's starting to launch, when it launches, um, you've got to, if you've got multiple IPs, you need to be constantly looking for new people. you got to, you know, manage the one that you've got. If your KPIs start coming in and your user base is enjoying something far more than you thought they were going to do, you need to be able to pivot. But, you know, this is the point where the communication is key between your team, their team, PR, you know, marketing on both sides to make sure everybody is on the same path and, you know, everybody's lined up, you know, with the same objectives here. Uh, and then reporting, you know, and that's that's basically the gist of it, you know, when you're sending royalty reports and, and all that sort of stuff. This is the best I can give you on maintaining a relationship. <laughs> Plan ahead, hope for the best, prepare for the worst, and be honest, you know, that's the, you know, the, the biggest thing. If if you're seeing a hurdle come up, let them know. Don't spring surprises on, you know, IP holders. They don't understand all the time what it means when, you know, the game didn't launch in Q3 because Nintendo didn't approve it. That's not something they're used to. You know, you have to have a very honest, very open line of communication, you know, you know, with these teams and be ready to explain things, you know. So we had a client one time and we were doing a, like a city builder type title and we sent the concept art over and they just exploded. You know, they were, this is complete trash. You have to do it all over again. I mean, just absolute. We were like, what the is going on here? And so when we had the conversation, we're like, what don't you like about this? Well, the colors are completely not our client's colors. It's like, well, this is concept art. This is not final product. If we need to change the colors, that's fairly simple. If you're talking about, you know, you have issues with the architecture or the, you know, thematic elements in the art, that's something different. If we need to change the colors, we can change the colors. But you need to be able to have that conversation and set those expectations of, you know, we're going to send you concept art. This is what you should be expecting. It is not final art. It is not a playable demo. It is not anything other than concept art. You really have to keep in mind that the person that you're dealing with on the other side of this deal may not be as well versed in our industry and how we do things as you are so don't assume knowledge you know don't talk down to them either but you know 
have that conversation, get a good feeling of how much experience they have with games, and then make sure you're managing expectations and you're being honest, you know, throughout the whole thing. So, yes, we can go into lessons learned. Brandon, if you're still there, we can do questions. That's the deck. I'll, um, you know, the next one is just resources we have for developers. Um, so I'll, I'll leave that up there in the meantime. But um, questions? Yes. Uh, and thank you for that, man. That is a department that I feel most game developers need to learn about uh, as we are kind of... I think a passion project, and it's something that I, I actually share a lot with uh, developers out there, where um, when we do have the financing or the time and the guts uh, to go out there and kind of venture on your own, um, the one thing that developers, I feel like they fall in to a lot is that now that they have the budget, they just go out there and do their dream project and just pretty much pray uh until it comes (laughs) out right but like this subject in particular are the types of avenues i feel like developers should look into to kind of learn uh business and be able to find sustainability and uh earn the right and uh and everything to to kind of venture off on their own so this is very eye-opening. I'm going to review this myself <laughs> slide by slide uh, because I, I think a lot of people got a lot of it uh, through watching your uh, presentation. Uh, there is a question here I would like to ask. This is on behalf of uh, HDI Andrew from our Twitch community. And anybody that is watching, we are pulling questions uh, primarily from Twitch, but I will be looking at Facebook, Twitter, wherever you are. Uh, Feel free to ask those questions directly to Jay here while we have them. This question is, would also love to hear your thoughts on approval clauses. We always try to have that if approval is not withheld in a certain amount of time, the build is considered approved. Yes. If you can get that, that is amazing. Chances are nine times out of a 10, especially when you're dealing with licenses, they're not going to agree to that um, because it just opens them up to all kinds of issues on their side. But typically, you're going to want to have the stuff in there that basically says, we're going to send it to you. It's, it, it's truthfully a lot like a publisher approval clause. We're going to send it to you. You have seven days or five business days to either approve it or unapprove it. If you are not approving it, then you have to give us detailed you know, instructions in writing on why it is not approved. And in writing means email, not necessarily a letter that they FedEx you that's registered or whatever. But, and then you have X amount of time to fix it and you know resubmit. The time to fix it and resubmit isn't necessarily as pertinent because you're not dealing with a publisher. Well, I'm not going to say that because actually it could be very pertinent if it's like a movie launcher, a tentpole event or something like that. But anyway, yes, I I love that the approval is, is, you know, if it's not withheld, it's automatically, you know, cleared as approved. Unfortunately, you're going to have a harder time getting that clause with an IP holder than you are with a publisher. Did I lose you? Are we still there? 
Yes, I keep forgetting that oh, I mute myself sometimes. Another question, <laughs> <laughs> this is from Blank Slate 0227, is about what about making per, uh, merchandise based on the game, say 3D printed collectibles similar to Funkos? You still need a licensing agreement. There, especially, there's a lot of t shirt companies that do this online. <laughs> Their philosophy is basically if we sell it for one day, they don't have time to sell us a cease and desist. Um, and so that's why you'll see a lot of, and I own several of these t shirts because they are really, really cool. But if you're doing any sort of merchandise based on a game, that is the level of licensing that most licensing agents and you know most of the licensing executives of these IP holders are going to be familiar with. But that's absolutely a scenario where you have to go and get permission. And you know if you're doing it, make sure of the we didn't touch on this in the lecture, but there are classes of toys and things. You have to make sure that you get if you want an exclusive or either or not exclusive, exactly what classes of toys that you're talking about. And so you mentioned Funko, and that's a good example because, hold on, I'm looking over here at all my Funkos. Um, I'm not the person that leaves them in the box. I take them out and put them on the shelf. So if you notice in your Funko selection, all of your Marvel characters, Star Wars characters, and possibly Disney in general, but I know those two because I'm looking at them right now. Those are bobbleheads. They're the only real bobbleheads that Funko puts out. The reason is a Funko Pop is technically classified as an action figure, and Hasbro or whoever it is owns the exclusive rights to do Star Wars, you know, action figures. So all of the Star Wars Funko Pops have to be bobbleheads random licensing factoid knowledge of the day that's a good random one uh see i'm full (laughs) uh so i have a personal well not a personal question i have a question for myself (laughs) uh so we have uh so how many so uh, there's a there's a part of the department that is dedicated to looking for developers for IP licensing, right? Uh, and I imagine being a reputable is a lot easier. You use the example like Insomniac. Uh, it's an easier uh, approach. How many of these deals from these developers are kind of, uh, you know, how many are out there uh, for developers who are constantly looking for IP licensing? to as a stable source of income for them it sounds like a great idea it sounds totally reasonable especially if you're trying to get your own project off the ground to get a lot of the practice through something a little more safe uh like using an existing ip that everyone already loves um but it isn't uh, in your world it sounds very traditional but me coming from it's not in games uh, i mean not in games okay in my yeah, in my world, it is because I've been doing it for 20 years. You're right. Know, but the reality is, and this is part of the reason that you know we did this lecture, there's a, there's a stigma. A lot of people, especially developers, especially smaller developers, assume that if they want to go out and get an IP to help with their game, it's going to cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars. And yes, that was true in the 90s and the early 2000s. It's not true anymore. 
you know, you can get, you know, very good IP that's going to significantly boost, you know, the visibility of your game and your studio. And it's very, very affordable. So, you know, there's not as much as you would think, you know, because a lot of companies, this is like the slide earlier where I said, don't call them, wait, no, wait, call them. That's why, you know, you don't want to just randomly call people because in, in this day and age, people don't take random phone calls. But the reality is I've secured a lot of IP over the years because I picked up the phone or sent an email or however you do it and, and ask. You don't know until you ask. And, and the worst that somebody can say is no. So years and years ago, when I was the company that I started before I did the Power Group, we were a production studio. There wasn't a term for it back then, but you know, we worked with National Geographic and, and Nickelodeon and Disney and Cartoon Network to create games based on their IPs. They would come to us, but we would actually have an outside studio doing the development. We did the design and the production you know, on the and the BD and the business side of it in-house. But we had a partner studio that was actually doing the development of it. And we trans slowly transitioned that into, you know, doing some of our own IP. And one of the first games that we did, and you have to remember, this is back in the heyday of the hidden object game, the premium hidden object games, not the free-to-play ones. And so I sat down and I'm like, okay, look, if we do an original hidden object game, it's not going to get any traction. I mean, Big Fish was literally releasing a different hidden object game every day of the week. And I said, we got to have an IP. And so, you know, we look at who plays hidden object games. It's women 35 and older primarily. So it's like, okay, so what else do women 35 and older do? Well, they read. Okay, so who are they reading? And I literally got a list of a lot of the you know, most popular authors for, you know, middle-aged older women. And then I started calling them and saying, you know, and here's the thing, I didn't call the publishing company. You want to start, when you're going and talking to these companies, you want to start as low on the totem pole as you can. And so we started, if you can't start with the actual author, which is the best place to start, then you want to go to their agent. And you can find their agent just by doing a Google search. But you know, we ended up doing our first game based on a New York Times bestselling author. And we actually had a publisher look to me and went, Jay, I know you've been doing this for a while, but how in the hell did you get did a three-person studio get a New York Times bestselling author? And I went, we called them. You know, it was just, hey, do you want to do a game? And we had probably 10 or 15 agents go, no, whatever, we don't do that. But we found one where... You know, the agent was like, I love playing hidden object games. Yes, I think she'll love this. And, and there it went. We did it. You, it, If you want to bring an IP in on your game, you can't be intimidated by, you know, the fact that it may cost a lot or they may not like you or they may not like your game. I mean, Kentucky Fried Chicken just put out a dating simulator for Colonel Sanders and it received ridiculous media coverage because it wasn't just we're doing something the same as everything else. They really went off the you know side of the boat in terms of creativity on that. You know, you got to be able to just give them a call, drop them an email and say, hey, look, we're making this game. We think your IP would be a good fit for it. What do you think? And then go from there. 
The worst they can say is no. Then you go to the next one on the list. So I have another question from Blank Slate 0227. What about using homages uh, from movies or other games? Homages. Homages. Oh, I always mess up on the word. Homage. Homage. I think the H is silent. It's another one of your French words, Brandon. You know, like D. Uh, D. 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 <laughs> uh, I never took French. So I don't know. You could be right on that. The um, you got to be really, really careful there. Um, you're going to get more litigious studios and less litigious studios. You start the closer you get to it, the more you're playing with fire. You know, there are laws. This is where you need to talk to an IP attorney, not not the guy who does the business deals. There are laws that protect public use, satirical use, especially of, of public figures. Like you can make a game about politicians and use, you know, very close, if not, you know, their faces and they can't do anything. Now, our current president will sue you because he sues everybody for everything. But that's beside the point. You know, there's no case against it because politicians and public figures like that are fair game, basically. But a Hollywood celebrity is not a public figure. So it's okay to do a tribute or an homage as long as you keep it within bounds. And it's a very, very gray area. There's no specific guidelines. Um, I would just simply talk to an IP attorney and the IP attorney is going to always caution you on the side of, you know, getting sued, but, you know, learn to the best of your abilities, what those guidelines are. But, you know, the more you start, the minute you take like any kind of official looking likeness or logo or anything like that, that at that point you've gone too far. But, you know, just get a good understanding of how far you can realistically go with a lawyer before you do it. You're that is dangerous territory. Well, thank you, Jay. Uh, this is a very interesting topic, and I've certainly learned a lot from it. And uh, we have like an active Twitch audience that have been loving your uh, particular presentation. And I want to thank you for kind of closing day one on a huge momentum uh, into day two. So this is uh, I'm going to flash your resource page again for people who want to find Jay and uh, get in contact with you and want to... Yeah, that's it, all the stuff that we have for developers, basically. And there's mm-hmm. our website, obviously. Per- uh, we've got a Discord server. Uh, we do the podcast where we do talks like this once or twice a week. It depends, on, <laughs> depends on if Indy and I are in town. Um, that publisher list, not necessarily anything to do with licensing, but if you are a developer and you want our list of 500 plus publishers, you go right there and put in your email address and it'll email it to you. And, you know, yeah, I should put it in there. But then, and then of course our networking event that we're doing with you all on Thursday and Friday. But um, the easiest way, I mean, my email address is down there at the bottom. Uh, If you're on our discord, just hit me up. If you've got questions, that's probably the easiest way to get an answer from me because I see it much more often than I do email, but um, yeah, happy to help. I love that you all do this. So glad we could be involved. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you are liking the podcast, go to the Apple iTunes store and give Game Dev Unchained a five-star rating. This will help spread the joy and love and exposure for the podcast, and we thank you very much. If you want to continue the conversation, go to our Discord, which can be found on our website, www.gamedevunchained.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at BlueChamps, B-L-U-C-H-A-M-P-S. You want to catch these episodes live every Tuesdays and Thursdays, go to twitch.tv forward slash blue underscore champs. Email me any of your concerns or questions that you want me to read aloud at the beginning of each episode at info at gamedevunchained.com. And if you want to further support us and help unlock the next feature, which is the voicemail feature, go to patreon.com forward slash blue champs this gives listeners a chance to kind of call in leave a message for both me and the guests to answer your deepest darkest questions and comment on your deepest darkest secrets thank you everybody